Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you, good to worship with you today, and good morning also to all of you who are worshiping online or at home from many different locations or watching later this week on demand. It is good to be with you as well. I just heard Mark and Amy announce next week's barbecue, uh, meaning I expect great attendance both hours because I assume many of you are planning to attend both services now uh, and eat twice. Another um, announcement that I'd like to make with all sensitivity is that um, we are not enforcing a mask mandate at this church. Uh, Of course, we respect our local authorities, and we understand that things can change quickly. Um, But as the fall season is here and flu season is coming, um, we acknowledge that some of the people in this church who have pre-existing conditions or are autoimmune compromised, they are at higher risk than most. And there are many who are worshiping at home right now and they want to be here, but they're not here in person because we are not in masks. And so I just want you to know the next step that we're gonna take for those individuals in our church family is gonna start next week. Um, We're gonna have a section of seating in this sanctuary that is going to be physically distanced and in that section only, we are going to have a mask mandate. Just in that section. Um, So you'll see that when you come in, you'll see signage pointing at that area, but really that is for all of you who are at home right now who want to be here in corporate worship, uh, but want to wear a mask and want to be seating next to people who are in masks as well. We'll put that section at the back of the sanctuary uh, so that people are not singing over you all morning, Uh, and we hope that that uh, specific section will encourage you to come back if you are comfortable and able. Okay, turn with me to Ephesians chapter three, a chapter that is given over almost completely to prayer. We see that Paul was a prisoner in Rome, but he did not consider himself a prisoner of Rome. Instead, in verse one, we read that he identifies as a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. Elsewhere, Paul referred to himself as Christ's ambassador in chains. And this kind of language up top uh, tells us a few things. One, Paul's suffering reinforced his authority. Churches certainly listened more intently to a man, to a leader who put his life on the line for what he believed. So Paul's zeal put him in danger, we know. But his danger put him in authority in the early church. And second, Paul's imprisonment was used by God, and as we read his story, we are reminded that God can use any circumstance for the furtherance of his gospel and the church. Thus, Paul saw himself not as a victim to his enemies, but a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And in chapter three, verse three, he makes a very unique claim. He says, God made known to him the mystery, the mystery, 
and he did it through divine revelation. He lifts the veil for us and helps us understand this more in verse six. This mystery that is through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And in verse seven, Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel. So right here, we see this mystery now named. Its name is gospel, good news. Paul is the undisputed chief minister of this message in New Testament writings. In his letter to the Galatians, we read, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. In other translations in the text, we see there is no barbarian or Scythian, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. But if you have studied first century sociology, you know that this good news would have raised some eyebrows. Because of the nature of the Torah's purity laws, Jews would have regarded Gentiles as ritually unclean. Now, this certainly didn't prohibit Jews and Gentiles from being friends with one another, but it certainly would have promoted a superior kind of thinking in the Jewish community. The Gentile community may have found the Jews to be somewhat arrogant, foolish, or even lazy. They refused to work on Sabbath, they circumcised their sons, they kept strict dietary laws, and they rejected the gods. So the average Gentile would have wrestled with Jewish monotheism. To pile on the pressure, the Jew and Gentile not only needed to grasp this mystery together, but also promote it, to move it forward. And we see in Acts that they were trying to do so, but there was division. Verse 10 tells us that this mystery is to be made known by the church. One scholar writes that it is hardly an exaggeration to say that any interpretation of Ephesians stands or falls on this verse. So from first century Ephesus to Tulsa, Oklahoma today, Christians have always struggled to find agreement. Look to the person next to you for a moment, even if it's your spouse or your best friend or you and me. You don't see eye to eye with that person on every issue, do you? We have disagreements and we have arguments, even though we worship the same God, we read the same Bible, we come and worship in church together. If you think I'm wrong, I want you to watch how easily, and I don't do this very often as a pastor, I want you to watch how easily I can divide this room. Just a few questions. Are you ready? And feel free to talk back to me today. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Any yeses? Thanks, Jerry. Good. Is cereal a soup? Any yeses? 
There, there are a lot of yeses, just maybe lacking a little courage right now. Maybe. Okay. What color is nothing? Okay. Is your thumb a finger? Is water wet? A couple of, <laughs> couple of confident people here today. Don't debate her on the wetness of water. Here's another one. Is everything debatable? Okay, you get my point. Um, I can confidently assume that there are hundreds of conflicting answers, some of you more confident than others. By the way, the National Hot Dog Council, which is a thing, and Webster's Dictionary do have opposing views on the hot dog question. This is the point. If we can debate and disagree and argue about an Oscar Mayer hot dog, then how much more can we debate and disagree and argue about theological issues? Especially in a largely Gentile context, they would have been wondering if Paul's theology was correct. As a Gentile, can I be saved? How far-reaching is God's love? Is God's love all-encompassing? Paul knew that this would be a mental and spiritual hurdle for the early church to jump, so he shifts from teaching to prayer. And we find this prayer in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, Paul writes, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Here it is. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people or all the Lord's saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Can a Gentile be saved? Well, grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, to know this love, that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Isn't that beautiful? Paul is very specific in his petitions, and as a result, the mystery of Christ and the mystery of salvation can be understood. So I'd like to examine four of these petitions from this prayer, and they all include the introductory word, that. Now I'm going to read these in their longer context, and then as I teach on them individually, we'll shorten them. We'll make this more concise. But one is that God would strengthen you with power in your inner being. That's verse 16. Anybody want that prayer to be true in their life? Anybody want that prayer to be true in their life today? Number two, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's verse 17. Number three, that you may know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Verse 19, 
And number four, also from verse 19, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So let's look at those more closely and I'll offer a shorter summary of what Paul was praying for for the church. Number one is strength in the inner man. Now this is anthropos in the Greek, so Paul's writing about humanity. Strength in the inner man, strength in the inner woman. Paul's not referring to self-discipline or the power of positive thinking, which a lot of things on TV try to convince you of. That's just gonna fix your problems. The power of positive thinking. Paul's not talking about just getting a grip on life. Instead, this is the fundamental work of God from his spirit to your spirit. Also in the Greek, there's a suggestion in this language of movement and of motion. So the strength that Paul is praying for here comes from God, but it is infusing, think infusing or penetrating your heart. Anybody want that infusion today? A little Holy Spirit infusion. Think of this from 2 Corinthians verse 11. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is the strengthening of the inner man or inner woman that Paul is writing about. Number two, the indwelling Christ. I love this quote from Robert Munger as he summarizes this in his book, My Heart, Christ's Home. He writes, the Christian life is like a house through which Jesus goes from room to room. In the library, which is the mind, Jesus finds trash and all sorts of worthless things, which he throws out and replaces with his word. In the dining room of the appetite, he finds many sinful desires listed on a worldly menu. In the place of such things as prestige, lust, and materialism, he puts humility, meekness, and love and all other virtues for which believers are to hunger and thirst. And he goes into the closet where hidden sins are kept and so on through the entire house. Only when he had cleaned every room, closet, and corner of sin and foolishness could Christ settle down and be at home. To have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith means that he is at home in every corner of our lives. That's good. So as a response today, I want to ask you to look at your life through the illustration of a house and do a home inspection. Do a home inspection on your own heart. Are there any areas of your life where you are not letting Christ rule? Now, notice I didn't say letting Christ in because you can invite Christ in but not let him rule. He can be your savior but not your Lord. Are you with me right now? So he comes into our hearts, but are you letting him rule and reign? Paul's prayer that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith is not like happy hour with Jesus, which I think is what some of us picture that to be. Let's get together with the Lord Almighty and chill. That's not what Paul is saying, invite him in, and yield, invite them in, and submit. 
Not an invitation to come and to stay for a little while and then to go, but to dwell, to inhabit, to settle in, and to stay, and to occupy. As you do a home inspection today in your own heart, is there an area of your floor plan of your life where Christ isn't invited or Christ isn't reigning? Is there an area of your life that is dry? Have you invited the living water? Is there an area that is contentious? Have you invited the Prince of Peace? Is there an area that is dark? Invite the light of the world in. Is there an area where you are enslaved by sin? Invite the almighty deliverer. Is there an area of confusion or doubt? Invite in the way and the truth and the life. He wants all of who you are. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey today, remember, Christ wants to dwell in your heart, not come and go. He wants to be at home. Number three, the boundless dimensions of Christ's love. Love, we know if you read scripture, is a dominant feature of our lives. It must be the root of our existence. Love must be the foundation on which everything else rests. Here is some reassuring news for all of us today. Love is not something that you need to invent. Love is not something that you need to create. Love is not something that you need to produce or even develop. We will never fully comprehend God's love. It is so glorious, Paul says, it passes our knowledge, but here is our hope. God is love, 1 John 4, 16, and we can only love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. So are you rooted in love today. A few years ago, we had new neighbors move in across the street. And the day that they moved in, the evening that they moved in, we had a significant storm that even produced a few tornadoes along the turnpike. So around one o'clock in the morning, a lot of the neighbors gathered outside in the cul-de-sac to check on each other. And obviously, we confirmed that none of us had power, and my new neighbor's vehicle was there in the street, and I said, hey, could, could we jump in and go down the street and check on Redeemer? By the way, I'm the pastor there. I don't want it to be weird for you that I just want to go check on a church. Um, so he says, sure. So we get in the car, and we drive over here, and you know, there's a few trees down and shingles all over the property, but otherwise, Redeemer was okay. So... We then drive back, you know, it's very dark. We drive back to our neighborhood and down the street. And now that I could see the west side of his home, which I couldn't see when we left, now his headlights are on it. Now that I could see the west side of his house, I said the very thing that he never wanted to hear. I said, bro, there is a tree on your house. Talk about a nice housewarming present. The day they moved in, look at this picture, uh, this tree fell on their roof. Now, I can tell you why this happened. It didn't happen because of the storms. Yes, the storms were violent. 
But it didn't happen because of the strong winds. It happened because of root rot. That's why that tree came down, a weakened root system in the same way if we root our lives on anything other than God's love, we're gonna experience heart rot and we're gonna fall over and we're gonna make a mess. We often choose the wrong thing to be rooted in, even good things in our lives, maybe our marriage or our children or our career or even some of you root yourself in the church and we forget that we're here for Jesus, not the church. Are you rooted in the right thing today? I, I preach this text at every wedding I officiate. I challenge couple, uh, couples' misconceptions of marital love. To love your spouse, no matter how healthy of a marriage you have, is never to be your first love. The love of God is meant to be your first love. And then the day of your wedding, you experience the second most fulfilling love of this lifetime, and that is the love of your spouse. We root ourselves in his love, and as a result, we can love others. By the way, I also tell, tell couples, if you're getting married, just to be happy, that's like flying on an airplane to eat peanuts. It's just not the point. It's really not the point. The point of marriage is to make you holy, it's for sanctification, and it's to be a witness of Christ's love for the church. Let's move on to number four, the fullness of God. Andrea and I uh, attended a three-day conference in Branson this week, and we had a terrific time and reconnected with friends in ministry and met new friends as well. Along with the content of this conference, another memorable feature of this conference was the food. Um, there was so much food. It, it, it was maybe the most food I've ever seen in my life. So we would go to the first morning session and we would get in this buffet line at nine o'clock and we would be given a big, and these, this bacon's like an inch thick. I mean, this is a lot of food. And we would get our breakfast and sit there and two and a half hours later, the host of the conference would say, let's take a break. Before we do, let me pray a blessing over lunch today. You know, and we would look out in the hallway and they would have already set up this elaborate lunch menu. The second day that they did this, one pastor's wife sitting to my left when he said, it's time for lunch, she said, oh, God help me. <laughs> it was so much food. You know, we weren't full every day of that conference. We were stuffed, like too stuffed, uncomfortably, overwhelmingly stuffed. And as I read about the fullness of God this week, of course I thought about the fullness in Branson. But with God, you never dread lunch because you're too stuffed on breakfast. God's fullness, it doesn't fill us and leave us so stuffed that we stop coming back to him. The fullness of God is when we are always satisfied in him, regardless of our external circumstances. This happens as we pursue him, as we pray for him to strengthen us with power from his Holy Spirit. Christ makes his home in our hearts. He occupies our hearts. And then we have this confidence and we have this security in his love for us. 
And as a result, we're able to love others. See, his presence, his love, his life, his fullness, it's all offered to you. So I repeat a C.S. Lewis quote in my sermon from two weeks ago. Are we too easily satisfied? Maybe so. Let me finish with a story of a gentleman who had grown up in a wealthy family but had become estranged much like the prodigal son. Deprived and broken in spirit, the man had taken to a life of begging, listened to an encounter that he had one day on the streets. He writes, I begged on the streets to survive. One day I reached out and I touched a man on the shoulder and I said, Mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, do you know me? Do you recognize me? Throwing his arms around me and with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last. I have found you. At last, I have found you. You want a dime? Son, everything I have is yours. He concludes this story with the realization that he stood begging his own dad for 10 cents when for 18 years, his dad had been looking for him to give him everything that he had. In relations to Ephesians 3, The fullness of God. Let's not be a people that goes around tapping the world on the shoulder asking for a dime. When our heavenly father is seeking to give us everything that he has. Let's not be content scrounging around for crumbs when Jesus Christ himself, the king of kings, has extended an invitation to you to sit at his banquet table. The final section of Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul concludes his prayer with this beautiful doxology where we see the sovereignty and the supremacy of God. This amen, this amen here, functions as a summation of chapters one, two, and three, and a transition into chapters four, five, and six. As Paul praises God for doing, able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, he reminds us that God does so according to his power at work within us. God's cosmic Redemptive, eternal work through Christ Jesus is meant and designed to be carried forward through you, the church. And why? For his glory, his glory in the church, his glory in Christ Jesus, his glory in the next generation that you are raising forever and ever forever and ever, for his glory. Amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org 
or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.